I felt that I was more or less destined for decades on, upon decades of like cubicle office work. And now here I'm in Bali talking to people who are just making it work in all the craziest ways. And I said, why aren't more people here? What's up, man? Like, why, why doesn't everybody get this? And he said, the reason more people aren't here is because they have to take a step back for a thousand days of full-time effort. All right. Well, Dan, welcome back to the show, man. Thanks for taking the time to be here. My pleasure. One of my favorite all-time topics. So I just, there was not even a question of whether I could make time for it. In fact, I'm moving today. It's moving day. I'm packing, I'm cleaning. And I thought I'm making time for this thing. This is going to be fun. Yeah. Like, I mean, like, you know, we're going to be talking about the 1000 day rule, which is something that you guys have talked a lot about over in the tropical MBA. So I'm really excited to hash it out. And yeah, congratulations on moving. You're in Austin during quarantine. So that's exciting. <laughs> yeah, it's fun to have like a new normal. Um, it's also been fun to be an entrepreneur during these times because um, it reminded me like how central my work is to my life, you know, and mm. you cut around, cut away a lot of the distractions and let's go here and let's do this. And it's like, this can really sustain me. I really enjoy doing my work. And that's been a cool realization during the last few months. As somebody who's been, you know, like location independent for a while now, what does it feel like that you have an apartment that's going to be yours in Austin? Uh, well, it's interesting. Like, it feels great. I mean, I love living in great places. That's part of the, the benefit of being location independent is, you know, maybe you save money half the year and live in a modest place. And then the, the next part of the year, you can go somewhere amazing and really ball out. Um, so, uh, I'm a big fan of, you know, living places for months at a time and especially going back to places that I really love. Um, so for me, it, it doesn't feel all that much different except the fact that I'm just paying a premium because my lease terms are shorter. Um, other than that, my life might not look so dissimilar to someone who has a normal job in a normal apartment, except for the fact that I'm on a lot more planes and I'm staying in a lot more hotels. Yeah. Are you a, uh, out of curiosity as somebody who's done the whole apartment thing and then like, you know, like I do stay in places like yourself a little bit longer. Are you a, I'm renting a furnished apartment place or are you, I'm going to buy a bunch of shit and then flip it and try to make a profit kind of guy? <laughs> I'm not going to definitely any like life admin stuff. I'm very bad at. So I would avoid that <laughs> at all costs. Although there was periods, I mean, look, I've been doing this lifestyle since 2008. So, right. I mean, I've lived in Spain for the vast majority of the year for uh, three years in there and have a place in Chiang Mai that I go back to every year for half a decade now for uh, serious months out of the year. Last year I was there for six months. So, and here in Austin, I spend a great deal of time. And for me, it's a lot about, um, you know, it's a little bit less about I love the, still love going somewhere new and seeing what it's all about. But as I get older, it's more about hanging out with my friends and meeting people that are relevant to what I'm up to. And certainly, you know, Austin, Chiang Mai um, are places that are really relevant for me in those pursuits. I really, by the way, speaking of Chiang Mai, I mean, I spent so much time there. And at first I wasn't that impressed with it. And I really loved your episode where you called it... Um, do you remember how you described Chiang Mai? The freshman dorms of digital That's nomadism? It. I just thought that was so amazing. But one other thing I wanted to add is a piece of texture is I hear about that when I'm here. I hear about it when I go to Facebook. 
I hear about it when I'm in Chiang Mai, but I never see it. Like I don't, and I just think it's worth mentioning. Like there's, uh, you know, millions of people that live in the greater Chiang Mai area. It's the second largest, you know, city in Thailand. And personally, the people that I hang out with are typically super successful um, people that I look up to as mentors, um, people that are doing fascinating things in crypto and e-commerce and so on. And so um, it's interesting how like that's the I think the value of even like you could say the same thing about Austin, you know, anybody with like, you know, a creative streak and a guitar is going to come to Austin, but you also have, you know, people like Jason Cohen running WP engine here and capital factory and Tim Ferriss and all that. So, um, I do think that these like premier entrepreneurial cities just have so much going on in them. And I'm really attracted to them for that reason. Yeah. I, uh, and I don't think I- I can't take the credit for the freshman dorms thing. I think I might've heard that somewhere else, but it's it stuck. And I, I feel bad that I can't remember who it was that said that, but, and I also feel I, I'm not the, the person to ask about Chiang Mai because I haven't spent nearly enough time there to make a good judgment on it. Um, that's why like in that episode that you mentioned, like it was number five for me because mm-hmm. I know that there is something there and I might not be giving it enough of a chance, but like I've just spent most of my time in Europe and I see a lot of the value over there. So like, yeah, it's the thing with Chiang Mai for me was that like I was so excited to go because I've heard about it for such a long time. And maybe it was the expectations were far higher than like just the realities. Do you know what I mean? I like do. you build something up in your mind and it just doesn't really hit where it is. Um, Chiang Mai is sort of a low key place. So you know, if everybody's out there on the web talking about how great it is for digital nomads and you get there, it's like, okay, <laughs> it could right. be, I could totally, <laughs> certainly the first time I arrived in Chiang Mai, it felt like a letdown. I remember turning to a friend and saying, why isn't everybody just in Bali? Like Bali's so much sexier <laughs> and cooler. And, and, uh, the joke I remember is a, a digital nomad who I was hanging out with at the time. She turned to me and she said, it's the difference in a thousand bucks. It's cost a thousand dollars more to live in Bali. And, um, I always thought that was a clever response, but um, I, I, the, I think the meta view here is um, that if you told me I was having this conversation when I was 26 years old, I would have just passed the fuck out because how come? just the idea that you can, great question, by the way, um, it, just the idea that I could actually experience a foreign country for an extended amount of time and somehow make money there. I mean. I, I still have this part of my soul that rejects people mocking digital nomadism and not taking it seriously and stuff. Are you kidding me guys? Like, like this was literally unimaginable 15 years ago. And certainly for people who love the idea of other cultures and exploring the world, which is every other person in the world. um, It's to me, it's still like this kind of dream come true. So so we're doing this whole segment on the podcast now called Deep Dive Thursday, which is like where I wanted, why I wanted to have you on talk about the 1000 day rule. And like, one of the things is, I think the people that were doing this before us were actually writers and authors. And like, I know that you and I have a weird similarity in the books that we've read because I've never, ever, ever, by the way, ever heard anybody else mention Ishmael or, you know, the story of B books that like mm-hmm. I heard you mention. And I was like, Hold on. Somebody else has bought those books other than me. That's weird. Um, But I don't know if you've ever read For Whom the Bell Tolls by Hemingway. Oh, yeah. That's one of my favorites. 
and, and a lot of Hemingway, I think with his expat sort of experiences, I'm like, oh, like people were doing kind of what we were doing it in a way. Do you see what I'm saying? Like it's 100%. like they were going over. Yeah. So there's even like a, there's even a famous piece in the digital nomad community making that exact comparison mm. to the golden generation to like Nimmin Hyman and Chiang Mai, which is this idea of, uh, okay, you think like the idea on the outside is like Fitzgerald Hemingway and Stein and all these people hanging out. Um, they were in Paris, how, you know, glamorous, but the reality was is like their dollars got them really far there. And so by going there, it was a sort of an arbitrage that allowed them to be creative. And really, I, I agree with you that the earliest digital nomads were writers because those were the only careers that you could manage it. You could send your piece back via mail and you would get paid for it. Um, you know, that radically changed around the year, maybe, you know, 2001, 2002 ish. But yeah, I mean, it was journalists that were like sort of set the tone. It was a combination of journalists and backpackers, I guess. Yeah. Um, the old backpack trail, which um, still remains, I think, in pretty full force as it was. But that was a formative experience for me as seeing how backpackers lived. And then, yeah, reading stuff like Hemingway was immensely inspiring to me this idea that you can just be an outsider and and just get your mind blown by walking out your front door um it's amazing yeah i've always been really fascinated with gertrude stein's character as this like like the place where everyone met yeah like her character was always for me was like oh that's dope like i want to have that apartment in paris where everybody meets and like you know you go in there and you never know if it's picasso gonna be there or like whatever yeah you know so she seemed like the famous one like everybody else was trying to do something you know and so she was like the arbiter <laughs> for sure i'll have to i'll have to like have you back on if you are uh if we don't scare you away with this interview talk about home bases because that's like one of the things that i've been talking about is like developing this theory of like safe houses like james bond you know how like you watch James Bond movies and he's got like a safe house in Morocco where like he's got everything built out. It's funny. And that's something that I've been uh, thinking about. I, I used to call it a stash house, but I like a safe house. That's cool. Yeah, man. I, I like getting nerdy about the theory because mm -hmm. the reality is, is like when you become a digital nomad, like a lot of this becomes like a hobby because it does become a big part of your life. Like how you're able to have all these experiences and work it all out and see the right people and get the right weather and get enough work done. And yeah, I mean, you could say it's all a waste of time, but also uh, it's really fun. It is. It's the hobby, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, man. You could like collect shit or whatever, or, you know, you could collect experiences. Stamps. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, cool, man. Let's, um, I want to dive into this 1000 day rule because like I said, I don't know if this is your, actually, I do know what your most read uh, blog post is on the Tropical NBA, which is something about guitar playing, which is yep. always really surprised me. But I think this is one of your most kind of popular concepts, which is um, goes against a lot of the other things that you'll read on the internet about online business, where it's people selling this dream of building a business in 30, 60 days and kicking ass and taking names. And you came out and said, nope, it's going to take you 1,000 days. And I love the honesty of that because even though like we were talking about before we hit record even though it's kind of harsh i think it's really good to have that perspective and that roadmap um and i think it it, it stands very true so i really want to do a deep dive on this and talk about it and give people like an idea of what this is how they can use in their own life but to start 
where did this come from? Like, how did you come up with this idea? You know, was it just something that you thought up or like, was it something that you collected and, and, and that sort of thing? I have a mentor uh, named David McKeegan and he runs a company called Greenback Expat Tax Services, which was started after the last recession in 2008. And we were having a pool party in Bali at the tropical MBA villa, which is, uh, if you dig back in the archives, you can see some embarrassing content about that. But um, so I was hosting these parties and we're standing next to each other. And our- Gertrude, Gertrude Stein style. Yeah, less intimidating and less famous, but yeah, <laughs> definitely. And I'm standing there next to Dave and he's got his family there and we were just having so much fun. And I remember looking at the people at the pool thinking like, having that similar feeling we were talking about earlier, which is like, I can't believe this. Like, this is for real. Like, just, I mean, um, absolutely unimaginable because I felt that I was more or less destined for decades on, upon decades of like cubicle office work. And now here I'm in Bali talking to people who are just making it work in all the craziest ways. And I said, you know, Dave, why don't you think, cause he, he had a good job, like in banking in London. I said, why aren't more people here? What's up, man? Like, why, why doesn't everybody get this? And he said, the reason more people aren't here is because they have to take a step back for a thousand days of full-time effort. And if you got a job, if you got a family, if you got a lifestyle, if, if you got hobbies, if you got anything, you're not going to, you're not going to take a thousand days to step back. You have to have a very strong vision and belief. You have to assemble an incredible amount of resources. You have to make less money. And he said, that's why people won't come here is that they're not willing to take three years of their life, lives, lives and take an enormous downshift um, in terms of personal income, in terms of the amount of time they work, in terms of the amount of time they see their loved ones and family. Talk to any entrepreneur. They all have stories about how their friendships changed. They all have stories about how little money they made and how hard it was to hire people instead of make money. They all have stories about, uh, you know, how they stopped doing things they really loved and how they stayed up really late working on their business and did two shifts. Like everybody has this kind of hero's journey. Maybe not everybody, but a lot of us. And it really resonated with me because I just thought, there's all this information out there on the web about clever ideas and mindsets. And even some of my favorite books, like the four hour work week, he says things like, Hey, you know, why build wealth if you can just like make a couple bucks online and then experience that wealth right now? Well, that's pretty problematic because if you do that, then what's going to happen four years later? Um, you're just going to keep having to figure out new cash flows so you can keep like enjoying wealth. Like that's not a great strategy. And then you look at, uh, like people like Felix Dennis and they're basically like, it's going to take you 30 years and you're going to, it's, you know, you're going to lose all your friends and you're going to ruin your health and all this stuff. And you look at stuff like think and grow rich. And it's like, just adopt this mindset and take this strategy. Um, and it's like, okay, but how long is that going to take? Because that's important. Like, am I just gonna have this mindset for 10 years and then I'm rich? Like, what's that all about? And then you look at uh, stuff like uh, the millionaire next door. And it's like, you're interviewing a bunch of people who are already rich. Like, what, they, what the hell do they know? Like, just because you behave that way once you're rich. And, and part of it is a lot of these wealth books are written by rich people. And they forgot what we're going through, man. Like they, <laughs> they, and, and so it was all these things that I think resonated with entrepreneurs that, look, if you want to go from just normal professional job to I'm wealthy on my own terms. And, those things that, and that means like, 
I can go wherever I want. I can do whatever I want. I work when I want all that good, wealthy stuff. Um, that's going to take you a thousand days just to get the ball rolling. And then all the hard work's still ahead of you. So, and it's just an observation that David saw. And once he equipped it in my head, I saw it time and time and time again. It's like everybody I sit down, who's got like a million dollars in their bank account. I'm like, when did you start your business? How long did it take? And I keep testing this theory everywhere. And um, it seems to be a pattern that doesn't need to be true. It doesn't need to be a speed limit, but it does set expectations about, hey, there's a lot of life paths out here. This is more or less what this one looks like. In retrospect with, with what you said about kind of taking a step, you like people are taking all these steps forward and then they need to take a step back and be kind of poor for a thousand days. In retrospect, do you think that it's beneficial to just never take those steps forward? Because like, for example, with my journey is like, when I got started, I didn't want to leave my lifeguarding job while I was poor and like working on this stuff because I thought I would fold like a cheap lawn chair the moment that the <laughs> money started coming out. You know what I mean? And I, like that I wouldn't have the, the strength to, to take that step back. Yeah, well, the answer is no one really knows, but I definitely see all different kinds of stories out there. And, you know, one of the things I love about meeting people in person is that you actually get to see the precedent case and like what actually happened. It's always a story behind the story. There's a story behind the blog post, you know, of, oh, they had this partnership or they already had this money from their parents. Um, a very common one, by the way, is people get funded by their parents. If you see a blogger out there, it doesn't quite add up how they've been doing this. It might be that they got a pension or something, yeah. you know? Where, where's the poop, Robin? I don't know. If, uh, you know. <laughs> and that's a really good question to ask of anybody, I think, spooling advice. Um, so the, the wisdom that Felix Dennis shares is basically like once you get to a point where you have a high level of responsibilities and you're enjoying a high lifestyle, the chances that you're going to be willing to do the things that entrepreneurs are willing to do is low. Um, on the other hand, if you don't have a lot of professional experience or savings or resources or whatever, sometimes um, it can be difficult to have the right skill set. Um, that said, I would typically choose like the young hungry person who has um, basically less, nothing to lose. I think that there's something, and if you're doing better, I think um, when I graphed David's story, who was a banker in London, he didn't have anything to lose because he got laid off. It was the financial crisis. He, he was very smart financially. He also had his MBA. He's very confident. He had friends who had businesses. So at a certain point, it clicks in your head like, holy shit, like none of these other life paths actually make any sense. Like at the end of the day, like these thousand days are the most de-risk thing I could do. They're not going to cost me money. You know, I'm going to learn a shit ton. I'm actually going to build something instead of just waiting for paychecks from other people. And so I think there's a moment for a lot of us where you look at your options, like four years of sitting in a cubicle, four years of going to college, four years of building a business. And you're like, hell yeah. Like who cares if I uh, can't afford the nicer things in life? Like the nicest thing in life is the opportunity to do this and meet the people who are doing it. And then it'll lead, lead to other things. So the answer is I don't really know, but I do think, what you come to the table with in terms of resources, connections, abilities is important because there is maybe one of the biggest mistakes that readers might be tempted to make with the thousand day principle is they say, 
okay, I Googled how to make money online. I eventually found this article that says it takes three years. And so I'm just going to like work on my affiliate sites for three years. And yes, you need to do that. But I also think people might underestimate the total full on onslaught struggle that I'm trying to communicate that those three years are in terms of just pure unadulterated hustle, getting anybody involved that can, you know, just building out affiliate sites in the middle of the night based on decent strategies might not cut it. Um, but certainly not a bad thing to try. If that makes sense. Like I think a lot of people that got through these thousand days, they did it with uh, just an incredible amount of hustle. Um, so yeah. But to be totally honest, I misunderstood about the 1000 days for quite a long time, like a year probably is when that 1000 days starts. Right. And you guys have this, and I, and I heard you guys kind of say, and I was like, shit, I haven't started yet. You know, that's when I heard it. <laughs> that <laughs> totally sucks. Heard, yeah. <laughs> because I was like, cool, I'm on day 335 or whatever. And then you guys kind of talked about it and I thought about it and I was like, damn it. Like, you know, back to zero. But like, because I always thought that if you apprentice in a business, you can like, that's kind of like your start and because you're working on something on the side, right? And the mm -hmm. thing that you guys said, and I'd love to hear you kind of comment on that is that your 1000 days doesn't start until you're all in. Like that's your, like, like you quit everything else and you just focus on that. Is that like, is there any way? Because for a lot of people, I think it's difficult to cut and then run and move on to that next thing if that next thing can't support them. So it's difficult for that 1000 days to even start, if that makes sense. I totally understand that. So you got to find clever ways to do it. And, you know, there's ways you can accelerate your 1000 days or there's ways that you can maybe ease into them a little slower. It really starts when you sell the core product of your brand or your business. You start selling it the day someone buys it. My 1000 days started when someone bought my valet parking podium. It was a $500 podium. I didn't actually have it in stock yet, but they went to my website and they bought it. And it was like, it was, it was a game fucking on. Like I am going to become wealthy selling these valet parking podiums. They're $500 I make this much money. Here's how many you got to sell. And here's what the team needs to look like. And I'm going to push through these three years. Uh, and there's a lot of ways I did that. I did side SEO contracts. Um, so I paid my employee before I ever paid myself. So I could have taken that money and supported my lifestyle. But for me, one of the ways I pushed through that thousand days is like, look, if I really want to make a hundred plus thousand dollars a year from a business that I don't run, I got to have somebody running it. So why wouldn't I invest in that first? Those kinds of considerations, you could accelerate things other ways by, you know, making a like being a business partner with your old employer. So like having a side branch where they would accelerate you through a lot of those early days. But then of course you're sacrificing some of the equity on the back end. So you have to make it up in other ways. Other people get through their thousand days faster by leveraging platforms like Amazon. So, okay, well you don't need to build your own marketing channel that could cut out a whole year. Um, but you know, you might pay for that sacrifice on the back end. So I think all these things are, worth exploring. It's the entrepreneur's job really is to design a strategy for survival and for persistence and then ultimately equity in something that has an asset at the end of the thousand days. Those sorts of things all converge to, if so long as you have a strategy that makes sense, um, you know, you're in your thousand days and you're cooking. The problem is, is like, 
if you keep changing things and you're doing a bunch of random things and um, then it can be hard to sustain progress unless each thing clearly is a step up. Like, you know, I did this contract as a service provider because I wanted to cut an equity deal with that company and I ultimately did and it contributed to what I was doing this way, that sort of thing. Or I'm going to take the SEO contract I had. Uh, I sold an SEO contract to one client uh, for $100,000 a year. And I was able to both live on some of that money and then have half of the team's resources go to my client and half to my business. So I was providing them with like such a high level of expertise about SEO and about outsourcing that I was able to, able to fund a whole marketing team with one contract. So those are the sorts of things that can help you get through your thousand days, just being clever and relentless. Yeah. I also like one thing that I've thought about the 1000 day rule is like, I don't think it applies to like very seasoned pros because I know people who have been in business for like, let's say like, like 30 years or whatever. And they have like industry knowledge. They have industry connections. They like know exactly what's up and like where to go. And these are the people that can go into a business with a guy who they've known for a while and like sell them on something and kind of get rolling and almost like, like, like make it like much quicker, if that makes sense. Like, like build a bigger runway much quicker. I think where the 1000 days is like really to me. And like, this is what I want to hear your opinion on is like earlier on in your like journey. Well, it's interesting because one of the things I wrote about at the end of my book is as entrepreneurs who've had a success or two, we all believe that what you just said is true. And the concept I called it is the rose colored glasses. And we forget what we went through with an incredible amount of energy, mostly in our twenties or early thirties, um, in order to change our lives. And mm. the reality is, is like, once your life is a little bit changed, I find a lot of older entrepreneurs really faltering because they forget about being hands-on the hustle. They think they can leverage like money and relationships. And a lot of entrepreneurship is about question marks and figuring out, you know, how to get from, I sold one podium to I own 20% of the global market. Like how do I get there? Where's my competition live? What's their cost structure? You know, how many, you, you're working backwards from your goal that you're trying to get to. And a lot of times when you're further along, yeah, you have more resources and contacts, but um, I think in some ways the thousand days is still standing there looming as a real challenge for everyone. Um, yeah, I mean, maybe you can get like a lot of money and then put a bunch of people I mean, his famous last words, like I got the startup idea, I hired a bunch of people to go do it, right? Like, right. and I guess we could explore why that's the case, but the reality is, is like, I think if you're going to go on your thousand day journey, you have to think of yourself as someone who uniquely can get through that. And I don't think most people can. As somebody who's, like you said, you know, you guys built a, a great business and then you sold it and now you're sort of restarting everything. How has that experience affected your view of the 1000 days? It makes me think that starting a business is still really freaking hard, even if you have everything in your favor, mm. because you know, no one gives a shit that you have some money in your bank account. Like customers don't care about that. No one gives a shit that you've been on a bunch of podcast interviews. Like all anybody cares is like, is this valuable? Am I willing to pay money for it? You know, 
Is it showing up on time? Do I love it? Am I going to tell somebody else to buy it? Am I going to be a loyal customer? That's it. And so that's really, really hard to find. You know, even if you're, and, and what ends up happening is that these incredibly complex organisms that we build over these thousand and then 2000 and 3000 days, they ultimately uh, end up being worth a lot more to a lot of us than what they're worth on the open market because the, the time it would take to recreate all those resources. And often as an entrepreneur, you'll see there's so much value there that you're not actually harvesting. So whether that's you have a team of designers or developers that you can get like side projects going or new ideas going, like all of a sudden all those things are gone and you were used to operating at a high level and now you're just sitting there back at square one and you can't go out and hire three developers. Even if you're a rich person, that would be ridiculous. Like, you, you know, you can't justify that to your family or to your retirement fund. So this idea that a lot of us have is ex, quote experienced entrepreneurs um, that we can just go do it again. Um, my experience is that we have to run the gauntlet again. Well, the benefit for anybody listening who's just getting started is, uh, you know, like it's even playing field. And I think a lot of people who are just getting started like to think that like, oh, if only I had, if only I had more money and if only I had more, you know, like relationships and sure those things help. But, it, you know, if what you're saying, you know, if we're to take what you're saying is like, it, nope, it's still, you know, like it's still a level playing field and you, you might be a little bit better off, but not that much. It's yeah. I mean, it would be tempting to use it as an excuse of certainly, I mean, I think the, the, the ultimate uh, ally here is, is hunger and vision. And that's what Felix Dennis says. Um, the amazing thing about our day and age is that we can achieve like sorts of wealth outcomes at much lower dollar figures because like living an incredible lifestyle and enjoying an incredible retirement is, is just cheaper than it was 20 years ago when, when he was coming up and thinking about, oh, I got to make 40 million bucks or whatever. Um, you know, you can have like a nice internet business and a million bucks in the bank, a couple million bucks in the bank. And man, you can live like you have 40 million bucks. So it's real. And that was one of the amazing points about the four hour work week. I do think that there, these things have gotten more accessible, which is why I think a lot more people are considering becoming entrepreneurs. So, you know, all that's really exciting, but yeah, I don't, I see, I feel like I'm all over the map with this question. Um, it's, it's, yeah. This, this is why this is a deep dive Thursday is that like, that was like the whole idea. The concept of these episodes was that it was really great hearing people's stories, but like, let's have real conversations and get in deep and like wide on the topic to really understand it. So this well, is, well, let, this me, is let me, let me say this, like the money is a commodity. Okay. So if you're a younger entrepreneur and you don't have money and you somehow can't get access to money, if you can't go out and get a client within seven days, if you can't get an investor within a month, then you don't understand how to make money. If you can't go get a job in two weeks, it like those are like three decent litmus tests. Now, developing a product is a tougher, but I still think a lot of people could do that within a month too. So this idea that somehow like money is the thing that's holding you back, I think we can just flush that one down the toilet. Like, and, and if what you're worried about is like your lifestyle expenses and flush it down the toilet too, because forget about it. Like your lifestyle is getting through the thousand days. That's it. You know what I mean? Like everybody's got to get on board with that. It's that hard. Um, so, uh, so I, I, I think that's what it all comes down to is like your skills as an entrepreneur, your vision of exactly like 
what I'm doing, I'm like getting this many units sold out into this world. And I know it's possible because I've done all the spying. I've met these people or whatever. And I am not quitting until everybody that touches me within a 10 foot radius is going to know exactly what I'm doing in this world. And I think that's, that's the kind of thing that like young people can really have. It's an older person. If you're going to a charity meeting, a PTA meeting can be a little bit more difficult. So the reality is, is like, if you want to play in that world, who cares about like the wealthy guy starting a second business, you know, that's out to pasture. The real question for me was always like, how do I go from being like solidly middle-class with no prospects to being a wealthy person? Like, how do I make that step? And my answer is 1000 days. Like that is the mm. answer. And everybody that made that leap, what, unless they got a lottery ticket or I just don't see a lot of exceptions to it. Like they went to the woodshed for, for three years. And here's the worst part, Miko, is that after the three years, a lot of them still fucked it up. So it, it's, but I feel like, you know, I've read basically every book with Rich in the title over the last 20 years. Um, and it, again, it's this, it's this idea of like, there's this idea of mindset and there's this idea of strategy. But what we're, the idea that I'm trying to explore here is like, how does that strategies, how do they unfold over time? And really the more elegant way to name this post would be called the 10 year career. Because, you know, the thousand days is really just the beginning. And like you pointed out, it does, I mean, a lot of people spend five years getting ready to start a business. Then you start one. And typically, you're not becoming wealthy after a thousand days. You just have a foothold on a wealth path. Mm -hmm. You're making more money than you would have made as a lawyer or, a, you know, just a normal professional. So now it's a matter of that middle game of pushing through the next 1,000 days where you're, you're doing SOPs, you're hiring staff. You know, so a lot of people... Uh, misunderstand entrepreneurship because they enter into businesses that are five, six, seven years old, that all this stuff's been figured out, basically. You know, that thousand day juice has been figured out. And now it's a matter of, you know, organizing desks, making sure customers are happy, that kind of uh, stuff. So I want to dive in a little bit deeper on that concept of before that 1000 days, because this is something that I've kind of like, it's this weird thing that's happened in my life where I am rehearing things that I've heard before and now they make a lot more sense or like I hear them with like different like like years and like I am like there's like like books that I've read that I almost like wasn't ready to read and like I didn't comprehend and now I'm reading like there's like an action has switched in my life to like back when I was like 23 and like thought that I was going to be the shit in, in the next year. Mm -hmm. And like, I feel like that is the time before the 1000 days. And it's like, like something like shifts and then the 1000 days start. So like, I want to talk a little bit about that period before then. And like, I know that you guys have done some work and some like thinking on like what that looks like. What do you, what do you think about that? Like, when does that shift occur in somebody to kind of go through that pre 1000 day period? And then like, what does it take for that shift to happen other I than just the first sale? Well, I think there's a lot of stuff happening that drives people to entrepreneurship. They can be negative or positive things. Like one of the most positive things is like having an apprenticeship where you actually feel yourself like making money on behalf of a company. And so you can start to get a sense for, oh my gosh, like this is like the actual mechanics. It's amazing to me, like 
the percentage of people that work for even very small businesses that actually don't understand anything important about the business at all. And, and I, I almost feel like I got to say that again, like that's maybe one of those things that wouldn't have resonated with like, Oh yeah, this guy is saying something. I, I cannot emphasize it enough that nine out of 10 people that work for even very small companies do not understand the companies. They do not understand anything important about them. Why, why is that important? It means that most of what people are learning at jobs, like aren't the things that actually grow businesses. And once you feel those things that actually grow businesses, like once you cash those checks and you feel it happening, that can be an incredibly powerful feeling. Um, and it's a tough one to get on your own, like behind a laptop. Then the negative things that can happen are you realize that like your career path is a dead end or, you know, there's a lot of existential things I think that drive us to, you know, do something on our own. There's also, I think kind of like an honor and a pride thing. You said you wanted to be a badass, like me too. Like, first off, I didn't want to be a wimp and, and, you know, do something that I felt ultimately was a compromise, but I truly believe that there's something honorable about being an entrepreneur and not spending the majority of your waking hours doing what random other people tell you to do. And then you've convinced yourself that somehow the project is a glorious one or acceptable. I think there's something sad about that. And I don't want to be a part of it, you know, in part because no one would ever pay me enough to be a part of it. So <laughs> it, was, it made it easy. The jumping off point for that day number one is something as simple as you're involved in a set of practices that are super valuable because you're either like top level employee, um, you've done an experiment on the web or something and like you see something, man, this is like tons of money right here. This is really something. And then you combine it with something that only you really see or something that an insight you've had from another one of your interests or pursuits. And it's often that like nexus that comes together and it's like, man, I've been an affiliate manager for two years. Like my mentor, he knows all about these affiliate sites, but you know what he doesn't know about is like, um, you know, in the past year, Google searches for dry fasting have tripled. And I'm going to take like everything I learned over here and I'm going to like put it together with this like niche domain experience I have because the products are cheap, they're high margin and bam, like it's, it's often that kind of nexus um, that can be the advantage for people that are in these entrepreneurial organizations that are doing really well. So that's why it's important to like choose your apprenticeships wisely, I suppose. You know, in my case, I worked for a high dollar custom manufacturing company. So I knew that with like all of the capabilities that we had, that we could produce these amazing pieces of furniture for Fortune 500 companies, but we would only do like a thousand units. I thought, man, if I could just like own the unit and just sell it to a thousand people, now that would be a great business. And it was like that light bulb moment, that nexus that worked ultimately got me to day one. One of my biggest questions about the 1000 days. And I know, I think you and I have like touched on this before is like, how much of an impact does a pivot within your service or your product impact that 1000 days? Like, like how big does that pivot have to be to like restart the 1000 days? But along with that, I don't know if you know, Matt Giovannisi from Money Lab. No. So, um, great podcast, really great guy. Um, somebody that I think you'd get along with. But one of the things that when I had him on the podcast, 
he talked about was that he has this um, website called Swim University. It's like he does a bunch of stuff around like how to maintain your pool and your hot tub. And what he told me was that had he not taken breaks during that to focus on something else, he would have never had the stamina to do it for 10 years in order for it to build into like what it is now. So what do you, what do you think about that during your 1000 days? Because there are a lot of people like myself, for example, who I have like that, like entrepreneurial disease, ADD, where I want to do something for three months and then I want to take a break and do something else. How does that affect your 1000 days? And, and is it almost starting over or can you like come back to it? It's interesting. So I love this. And this is why I came on this podcast, because this is a really important idea, which is that different money different cash flows have different velocities. Mm. And so sometimes um, you need to let the market breathe. You need to let things happen in the world that ultimately contribute to a feedback loop to whatever you're building in the world. Um, and so there's certain business models like selling services, for example, that basically it, you're only limited by how much phone time and talent and leads you have. Whereas other things like I have a jobs platform, Dynamite Jobs, like you can't just get a million people coming to your website the next day. It doesn't matter if I could like stay up all week long and like take Adderall and drink coffee and make the greatest job site in the world. But the chances that a million people are just going to come and start using that are very low. So it has this sense of like, as an entrepreneur, you do, you create value and then it goes out into the world and you have to wait for these feedback loops. So I do think that for a sense of motivation um, and persistence, having breaks is critical. So there's a mindset issue. And as well as um, this idea of actually the velocity of the cash flow in the marketplace and what things need to develop like organically over time. You know, if you're trying to sell like some kind of complicated productized service and you send it out to 100 people and you got a sales team, it's going to take them you know, we call it sales cycles. That's just a traditional mm -hmm. way. But, but every business, every product, every cash flow has a quote sales cycle. So understanding that I think is, is really important. The other thing that, that this makes me think of is like just how critical game selection is here. Like, um, because we're talking about time and how it unfolds over time and how important that is. But that doesn't mean we can get rid of like mindset and strategy. And so the mindset part, taking breaks, being motivated, all that, yes, but also strategy. Like there's a reality of like a lot of people just are working on things that don't have the potential to make them wealthy. And I think that asking yourself if you're playing in games where other people are showing the kinds of results you're seeking is, is really, really important. I think that might, you might be touching onto something there that's kind of like a, like a raw wound for some people who are just getting started is that, okay, they understand this. They understand that it's a thousand days, but how do they make sure that this is the right 1000 days? And this is a question I was actually just talking about with somebody and the, and the best thing that I could like muster up as an answer was like, mm -hmm, I don't know, no. you know <laughs> just do it. Right. But like, I think that that is a very unsatisfying thing because, and I think that's why people get so attracted to this bullshit of like, 30 day become rich things is because there's almost no downside to it because, okay, I wasted 30 days and then that 30 days can restart. And yeah. I think this is what's like really difficult for a lot of people is saying, okay, I'm committing to this for a thousand days. And if at the end of the thousand days, 
there's no return. Now what? Do you know what I mean? Like it has to restart. That's a great point. I would say this. Um, you, the answer to that question from me and from you, I think has to be and should be. The entrepreneur really needs to see something about those customers, um, those clients, and needs to have be getting progress along the way. I mean, Rob Walling has a very a sister concept called the stair step approach. Just did a video on it. It's it's and basically the point is is like if you're at the point as an entrepreneur where you're still looking at make wealth in 30 day videos, and then your idea is that you're gonna like go build a SaaS app that's gonna take you two years to build. And then you're going to hope to get customers like on day 600 or whatever. This is a horrible strategy because you have zero idea about what you're doing. So you'd, you'd want to select something that gives you more immediate feedback that, hey, I sold a Valley Podium today. I sold two the next week. I sold three the next week. I know exactly how many Valley Podiums exist in the world. I've spoken with my customers. I know how to get to my goals. I know how to build a multi-million dollar business off of just selling these things. And there's no reason why you can't know that that's a possibility in the first year. Mm. The, the real question is, is can you get there? So that should be the question you're answering in years two and three, not like, is this going to work? Uh, right. So, so almost it, like building little like judgment points along the 1000 days and say like, you know, after 300, like, like, like see where you're at and see if this is something that can last the 1000 and, and, and further. Is that what you're but, saying? I think actually you brought up a nuance that's really important from a strategic perspective, which is, and it, it loops back to the whole way back to the beginning of the conversation, which is business model selection. Founder fit is an under talked about thing in the entrepreneurial space, which is like, yeah, that's a good idea, but are you the right person to be executing it? And this idea of based on where you are in your career and your like contacts and resources and abilities selecting the right kind of business model to like traverse these thousand days, I think is a critical, critical thing. So there are a lot of technology products that actually do require you to, you know, go into the woodshed. Now that said, if you're like dedicated to SaaS, you can basically do a SWAS, you know, from day one and start getting, you know, software with a service. So, you know, or you can almost any piece of software can be, uh, a lot of business software can the same effect can be achieved by a bunch of spreadsheets, Zapier and a bunch of people that are outsourced staff. So there's ways that you can try to get through the thousand day principle without exposing yourself to that kind of risk of like, I didn't get customer feedback as a Steve blank famously says, I, I didn't get out of the office. You know, I never really like looked these people in the eye and said, okay, I know there's like 10,000 of you people in the world. And you know, 500 of them, and I've sold you something that's a thousand bucks. And, you know, I think that those are the kinds of part of what's, if you go back to the original post, the thousand day principle, it outlines like the kinds of conversations you're having. And like before the thousand days, you're like, you know, going to your girlfriend and you're saying like, Hey, what if we did this like e-commerce shop that sold this or whatever? And like, that's definitely like a, that's like an early days conversation, you know, like as you move along, you start to find yourself having more strategically meaningful conversations. And if that's not happening for you, if you're still back on the YouTubes, like looking at, uh, you know, get rich quick schemes or whatever, then you're not, yeah, you're not, you're not actually having any progression. Yeah. Uh, for anybody who's interested, we're not kind of like 
diving in and like going over what they are just because you've, you've written a blog post on it. So if anybody wants to go see it, you know, you guys can find out, have the link in the uh, show notes. But one of my favorite parts about here that I totally giggled about uh, was uh, in the, kind of the second part that you called the grind day 334 to 666, which just creeped me out when I saw it. <laughs> but you have these like, you know, kind of like you said, like things that you're saying to yourself. And my favorite was you have no money. And then the next one is your business gets written up in that thing you want it to be mentioned in and no clients come from it. And it's just this <laughs> like, it's this thing that like, it's like, oh yeah, you know, like, like you were so looking forward to that and you thought everything was going to change and then absolutely nothing fucking happened afterwards. And it's like, it's tough exactly what you mean. <laughs> totally, man. All the time happens. And you know, here's the thing about being an entrepreneur is like, it can be I think it's more stressful at the end of the day to have a job and to be told what to do and to not know what's going to happen and to be felt, feel that. But there's a different kind of stress that we experience, which is it's all on our backs. And like, we have to make all these decisions all day long and it can be tiring. And, and then sometimes this idea of like the, the big mention is just like, you're abdicating a little bit of responsibility, just like, right, Oh, thank right, right. God. Like we're going to, you know, the doors are just going to bust open with new customers. And it's like, no, you know, you run a business. Like, you're responsible for getting new customers at the end of the day. And it's a long, long process, but getting new customers is another one of those velocity points, which is you can't just go to Facebook and say, I got this thing. It's a new thing. Everybody buy it. You know, that process of people hearing about what you're doing, ultimately trusting it, you know, it coming around at a point that they need it. Um, it just takes a really, really, really long time. So, and I think there's like a level of like marinating here, like, you know, like that's why like the 1000 day rule is like I, the principle is like so interesting is that like maybe in the first 600 days, it's marinating, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? And like you're working with a few clients and it's like really tough and like you almost have to like beat it into submission and then you've beaten it into it enough that like people start seeing results from your past clients or the product is getting like really good reviews or whatever it is that you're doing. And then it almost kind of like, like goes into the next gear, you know? Totally. Personally, I mean, this is an interesting conversation I've thought about a lot over the years. Like, I probably wouldn't ultimately start a client-facing company. Um, but if I did, I think that that's all I would do and just basically go straight up, like, I'm going to have the biggest agency that does whatever um, and just stack cash from it. Because I think what what you don't want to do is be doing too many things in those first thousand days, you know, because it's just the amount of resources required to get from the hamster wheel, like what Rob Walling's talking about to the flywheel. The first 1000 days, you can imagine like you're pushing that weight around the top and the flywheel has this momentum, but it's so hard to get started. And if you're trying to like push a bunch of things along the first 1000 days, I think it's really, really tricky. So unless there's some kind of amazing uh, crossover that they both contribute to each other or whatever. But I do think that's a risk in and of itself. So this idea of like going for clients versus customers is one that I think about often. And um, I am very concerned about clients because I don't think that they contribute to an asset very often. So what a great company that ultimately builds wealth, typically they're companies that have an asset, you know, Is they have sort of IP. Yeah. They own a product that people want to buy or they own a platform that people want to use. And the problem with services businesses is that, well, what is that in a services business? 
And then, so say as the entrepreneur, you're investing, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in like all this staff and all this labor and people doing all these things. It's like, well, what are they building? Are they not building the asset? You know, they're, they're building things that the clients want. So it, it was, even when I ran a, a multi-million dollar services business, I was always thinking like, what's our asset here? What's our asset here? How can we, and ultimately I just left the business because I realized the answer was like, this services business is amazing. Like we have all this equipment, we have all these people, they're all really smart and they know what they're doing. But at the end of the day, it's like one big job for everybody. That's the way I looked at it. Like it was one big hamster wheel. Like, yeah, we had all this momentum with leads. And I guess you could say our asset was the brand of the company that people knew to come to us for work. So it was our sales funnel and our relationships. But if what that asset leads to is just another year of like working for them, then that ultimately didn't feel like something I wanted to build. So I honestly would often uh, just give a dose of warning to people who want to go out and build services businesses because you can make money from a services business like the next day, basically. Yeah. And I think that that's like the intrigue of them. The problem is, is like, well, once you're down in year number two and three and you're making decent money and stuff like, well, when are you ever going to like rip the bandaid off and build an asset? And the answer might be for people just getting started out. We'll just start that way. Like mm -hmm. start, start with the asset in mind. Because it's better to be broke now than to be broke four years from now kind of thing. It's interesting that you're touching on this because this is, like I said, you know, I did a video um, all about Rob Walling's, you know, the, the, the stair-step approach. And I kind of twisted it on like, because it is focused on like products and specifically like software, like, like twisting it for services. And the thing that I'd be interested to hear your opinion on is that I think where services are really interesting, specifically starting in this way, is for a lot of people who are just getting started, it's a great way to uncover potential assets that you then double down on. So kind of like the way that I just to like rephrase it, it's like, okay, you get started and you're working on services, but the whole idea is, hey, how do we productize that? And that's the next step. And that is the way that you build the asset. And like, you know, I know of a few agencies who have uncovered a pain point through the service they're offering that they then fill with either, you know, some sort of like software that they build to, to fill that hole. And then that becomes their product. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think it's a wonderful idea. It's difficult to execute in practice for a variety of reasons, but look at 37 signals and Basecamp. They're mm -hmm. the original story exactly. of that. Yeah. And, and countless people get into agencies with the intention of doing that and then have a difficult time taking a step back to build product. Cause it's, Here's the, the thing about an agency is like you have 10 people come through the front door. You have a good uh, knowledge base and product and sales team. Man, you're going to turn two of those clients into like $60,000 next year. And it's like, but they're going to be a pain in the ass, of course, because you're charging them a lot. But hell yeah, like why aren't we going to turn, why are we going to turn away that revenue? Now, to sell them a productized service, you're going to basically need to have 1,500 people coming through the door. And they're going to have a ton of money and the same kind of like, even if it's a virtual conversation, it's going to be happening in front of you where they're going to say, look, I got this big problem. I want to, I'm willing to invest $20,000 a quarter to fucking do with it. And then the productized entrepreneur says, nah, you don't, it, here's what we sell. You know, I'm not, not trying to sell it. So in other words, having a strong vision and having a, you, you have to really 
know what you're driving towards because you're going to have to face that next set of trade-offs then again, or else you'll never quite make the switch. And, you know, I, this is very much a sampling selection. I'm trying to be honest about it. I'm not trying to just like throw shade, but I have met a lot of service entrepreneurs that run multi-million dollar agencies and almost universally, they don't really want to be doing it almost universally. There are some exceptions, but and then a lot of uh, coaches that teach agencies, they'll talk about examples of services companies that are like basically big corporations. The problem is, is like big corporations aren't run by entrepreneurs. They're run by like well-paid executives. It's a different game. So if th- we're talking about building like your personal asset, that's going to build you wealth the rest of your life. Um, so I think starting with an agency is wonderful. Service is wonderful. Same kind of stair-step thing happens. Um, be very conscious about when you do find a residence of a product market fit, you, you, you might have to make some really hard decisions about what you're used to in terms of selling, marketing, and even cash flow. Yeah, almost like the same thing occurs where maybe you're offering a whole bunch of different services and then you, you see a place where you can productize one of them. And just like when you were getting started, you almost need to take three steps back and start over with that one focus to then build up to the next level, right? And that can be even more difficult because it's not just you eating ramen noodles at that point. You have staff whose salaries you need to support or, or whatever it is. So it can be an even more difficult decision to make. Yeah. And part of me thinks like, I've I, look, I, I can think of in my head probably people I've interviewed in the pod that have this exact thing going on where it's like, you got the dog food product over here. You got the productized service over here. You got the agency over here that's paying for everybody. Part of me is just tempted to say, isn't this a pretty overwrought way to go about solving this problem? I mean, Greenback Tax Services didn't uh, start their business by saying like, call me up, I'll answer any tax question. I'll be your 100% tax person. I'll be your outsourced accountant. They said, no, I will file your expat taxes for $500. And the thing about a productized service is like, it takes less time to conceptualize a productized service than it does to go through a sales cycle with one client. So you got to ask yourself like, well, how are you spending your time and what do you want your 1000 days to look like? I guess the, the real question is, is like, it's not clear to me and I just genuinely don't know like how valuable that agency really is to finding these opportunities that I just know that agencies are super tough. They're super tough mm-hmm. to run. And it's a different game in terms of managing people, managing clients. It's a different game than productized services because productized services are more like a product business where you're like, you're all about margin all the time. You're all about finding ultimate resonance, getting a bunch of people into the funnel. Um, and so I would still probably just go straight to productize, straight to product. Sure. Now I, you know, I want to be, I want to be respectful every time. I always love talking to you, but I do want to ask you kind of in wrapping up, um, you know, like we said, you guys have kind of gone through your 1000 days and and been successful and sold your company. And then now you've kind of started over. So with this kind of understanding of of the concept, what day would you say that you guys are on at the moment with, uh, dynamite jobs? Uh, it's a good question. It feels like, probably 300 or somewhere in the middle. I feel like we're right in the middle of the 1000 days. We're in the grind. We could, we make money, but not enough to pay ourselves. Um, all the money goes back into the company. Um, we feel like idiots. 
Your um, business got written up in that place. You really wanted it to. We got written up. Happened. In, yeah. I'll tell you what, we got written up in a couple things and it was nice, but yeah, it didn't make us money. And we're paranoid about our competition. Um, that's a big part of being in the 1000 days when you're not sure what you're doing. You see other people do anything that's like even close. You're like, Oh fuck, we're screwed. You know, um, uh, you, you, you have all these weird conversations with your team. Like I was trying to think of like how many people actually have job boards and well, I was trying to visualize a room of like what they're doing at night and how they're thinking. And this is their main thing. And, and so I would say we're squarely in the middle of like, we have no idea whether this is going to work out and it's exciting. I mean, it's kind of on the one hand, it's kind of awesome. On the other hand, it's kind of embarrassing, you know, because it's like, man, I should be better than this, but that's, what it's all about. And that's why I think people that are younger that have nothing to lose are in an advantage to people that have more to lose and that aren't as willing to take risks. Um, because it's been harder for us to like get up to speed where we're out there doing the kinds of things that if it were 2010, I was just like willing to do anything. I was shameless, you know? And I really, love that. And there's so part of me about this second 1000 days for me is about getting back in touch with that and how much fun that process can be. That's um, an interesting segue into my kind of like follow-up question, which was, you know, you're going through it a second time. Now that you're a bit more experienced in that 1000 day journey, what are you doing the second time around that people that are going through it the first time can take away and, and add it to their journey? Well, I did it a lot better the first time around because the entirety of my life, resources, focus, energy, and especially passion was focused 100% on what I was doing. And that's not true the second time around because I have mm -hmm. multiple businesses, interests, concerns. Um, I also don't need it to work out. Um, I very much like it too, but I don't need it to work. So and you think the first 1,000 days, it's almost like, what can you learn from the first 1,000 days now that you're in your second ones? Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like I, there's something about my inexperience that made me a better entrepreneur, that I wasn't so sure that I knew things and that I was willing to try things. And also that I had a very strong clarity of vision and I was willing to sacrifice um, almost anything to get to that vision. So I think that that's why Felix Dennis really in his book, How to Get Rich, he really lionizes that individual. I mean, he takes some time to say like this person, the person who has nothing to lose. And it almost sounds like, like a locker room talk at a football game or something. Maybe like you said, the first time you read it, you're like, I don't know. But then you look back on it and you're like, man, like entrepreneurship isn't about money. It's about value. It's, if you wanted to make money, you'd go on the internet and buy and sell luxury watches on eBay. And you'd make a couple bucks, but this is about building things that are tremendously valuable to thousands of people. You really have to be a little bit nuts and a little bit crazy and, and be willing to, to cut corners and, and to see connections that others just aren't willing to make because everybody else is following the right way to do things or the rules. And as an entrepreneur, you're basically defining rules that are new and you do it by doing basically anything and then seeing what happens. So. In a lot of ways, it was easier on that front the first 1,000 days. The second time around, it's, 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 uh, there's other benefits to that too. Getting to work with the team right away. You know, we slow down our uh, 
maybe our ultimate, uh, you know, journey by bringing in people right away to work with. So that's because we sold a company. We had a couple extra bucks sitting around. We were able to do it. So it's, it's a great question. I wish I had better answers for you. Uh, I think maybe sometimes a great question has bad answers because I'm not exactly sure. Um, all I know is that the whole point of the thousand day principle. And I think the reason that thousands of people have talked to me about it over the years, literally is that it's freaking hard. It's really hard to do this, but it's not rocket science. That's the best part. Like the information's all there. It's just a matter of, um, sticking with it and being willing to do something that's harder than, you know, 99 out of a hundred people are willing to do. And a lot of times with a little bit of luck, that'll, that'll lead to wealth. Yeah. And I think it's really, that's like a really good way to wrap up. I think, because I think a lot of people who are just getting started really wish they could have already made it and starting. Do you know what I mean? Like I've definitely felt that way before. Like, damn, like if I had only had some money and had already exited on a business and, but hearing you say that having gone through it, I wonder if somebody's listening who's just getting started and is like, shit, maybe it's not easier. Maybe now it's easier and kind of lean into that. So uh, it's a tough thing to believe. And, you know, I'd be skeptical of myself saying that too, but I will tell this story. Uh, I was coming up with this concept of the rose colored glasses and how entrepreneurs often sell their businesses and they regret it because they realize that just because now they have millions of dollars or whatever, they can't go back and recreate their business because they don't have the drive, the insanity, the skill set, the passion, the, whatever. This, it w they got lucky the first time. They, they were nuts. And I remember this is a tough conversation to have because who wants to hear somebody who made a bunch of money complain? And so I'm sitting on my bike riding next to this guy telling him all this story about this book I'm writing. And he's like, yeah, man, I totally. I feel the same way. And he's going on and on about how he doesn't know what he's going to do now. And like he misses his staff and just he, he forgot how hard it is to go through the first 1,000 days and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, do you mind me asking how much you sold your business for? And he's a young guy. He's like about my, my age, old, young. And uh, he turned to me and he said, uh, 50 million. And I said, motherfucker, you complaining to me right now? Are you kidding me? Get off of this bike. I don't, but it's this idea of like, yeah, we all believe that there's like this level of money where all of a sudden this by definition, really hard thing is going to get easy. It's just not so clear to me that it is. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that you say that I just had one of those moments that we've been talking about, about you, you hear the same thing and like you, you hear it the first time you don't understand it and then you hear it the second time and it makes sense. This reminds me of, because I, I don't know if you saw, we did a podcast about like the four hour work week in 2019 and like revisiting it. And I was really mm -hmm. pissed that Tim Ferriss hadn't rewritten it. And one thing that I read that he said was that he doesn't want to step on the butterfly that happened then. Like that he realized that he was in a place in time that he can't recreate and that if he tries to do it, it might not work. Totally. And that kind of reminds me of that, that it's almost kind of the same thing is that he realized that he had one very successful business and like successful business, but a book. And he's almost realizing that like, if he tried to redo it, he wouldn't be in the same place or something like that. That's, I think that's an interesting little parallel. Yeah. Because we spent a lot of time talking about, it's a very interesting concept. I don't know what the hell you do with it. It's like a lot of truths in lives. Like once you get it, you're like, Oh man, like, that's complicated. The reality is, is like you can be the hardest worker in the world, but entrepreneurship might not work out for you. Mm -hmm. If you're not working smart, 
if you're not if you don't have a solid strategy and if the world uh doesn't line up for you in terms of luck so this is uh this is an important concept and the reality is is like uh uh yeah 50 percent of people who sell their businesses are miserable about it and it's this is one of the big reasons why is they have to realize like man i really undervalued what that journey was um yeah and just the idea like tim's written a bunch of other books and none of them you know, if you read the four hour work week right now, you have to say this was written by somebody in their twenties. Mm-hmm. Nobody in their forties would write a book like that. It's, it's absolutely a sales letter for a ridiculous way of living. And it's just so cocky and cool. And, and, and it could only be written by a 20 year old. And it almost has like an ignorant brashness totally. that made it so catchy. That I think Absolutely. somebody, like you said, that's like in their 40s and it's like, maybe, I, you know, and like, I mean that in like, a like obviously I love the book. I don't, I'm not the guy to too, go out and yeah. call, you know, I don't think Tim Ferriss hearing me say cocky brashness yeah. <laughs> is going to play out well. But, um, you know, it's like, like, I think that it would have like a softer tone that maybe wouldn't sell as well. You know, 100%. Yeah. You don't want to hear like, well, on the one hand, uh, yeah. you can do this on the other hand, <laughs> Tim's like, look. If you want to live like a millionaire, you can start next week. And you're like, hell yeah. Right, right, <laughs> and and the sure. part that really gets me is like, you know, at the end, he's like, now what are you going to do with all your free time? Because you got all this money, you're traveling around the world. And he's like, look, you're probably going to have to fill this void. How do you fill voids? Uh, you come up with a personal goal and you go to the gym and lift weights. And it's like, bro, like only a 20 year old would think you fill in voids by going to the gym. <laughs> right, right. But well, I, man, but, I, but that's what's so great about that book, and I agree with him. Like, and that's what a, the same kind of moment happens with great businesses is they they just capture something, and then the momentum. Ten years later, everybody is, you know, talking about uh, where's our company retreat going to be, and what's our new brand image going to be like, and all what's our executive council, and what charities we're going to donate to. But the reality is, it was like that brash arrogant that strange insistent pitch that got the whole thing going and that's what everybody needs to find yeah man and um i know that you guys are working on some more like extra content all about this concept so if people enjoy this podcast definitely go and check it out um i know that you don't exactly have like a published date but when you do i'll make sure to link it up so if anybody's listening and this has been published um, they can go and check it out. But dude, always a pleasure. I don't want to keep up. I don't want to take up any more of your time. I know you're moving. I'm so, moving. Um, I'm so excited. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a good day. It's a fun day. But uh, right. thank you, man. Seriously, I appreciate you coming and um, all the best, dude. I got to roll. All right. Thanks, Miko. I appreciate it. See you next time.